From the KGOU studios, I'm Suzette Gorlatt, the Dean of the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies. Welcome to Worldviews. Trita Parsi has written several books on U.S.-Iranian relations. His latest, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, offers an inside look at the Iran nuclear deal, which limits Iran's nuclear capabilities in exchange for the lifting of economic sanctions. If we undermine the deal, we have no credibility to go back to the negotiating table. And then we're only faced with either war or accepting Iran as a nuclear power. I'll talk with Trita Parsi on today's show. But first, Rebecca Cruz and I will discuss the increasing role of women in Northern Ireland and in the Kurdish region of Syria as a reflection of this week's International Women's Day. Almost immediately as the Kurds took over that area, they did start instituting more of these women-friendly policies. That's all coming up after news from NPR. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlott. Rebecca Cruz, it's uh, International Women's Day this week, so happy International Women's Day. So let's focus on women and uh, talk first about how a woman is replacing Sinn Féin's leader. Sinn Féin, of course, is the kind of the political arm, the party of the what used to be the Irish Republican Army in, in Northern Ireland uh, that was fighting for independence. Sinn Féin, of course, has been around for a long time as the political party, uh, but Jerry Adams was the leader for 35 years and a woman is replacing him, Mary Lou McDonald. She's the first woman in modern times, but there was actually a woman who led this party back in 1937, Margaret Buckley. So it's not the first woman necessarily, but uh, certainly the one most recent. And then, of course, following in the footsteps of a longtime leader like Jerry Adams. Uh, What do we expect about this uh, in Northern Ireland? Well, this seems to be a shift. Not only do we see the leader becoming or being a woman, but we also see the vice presidential role also a woman. She's from the North, uh, whereas Mary Lou is actually from the Republic of Ireland. So this, of course, is the largest political party in the Republic and has a great deal of influence in Northern Ireland as well. So kind of going across both borders. So we've got the party being led by two women, which is significant. It's also significant that Mary Lou McDonald is rather young. She's only 48. And so she is coming from Dublin. And she did not necessarily experience a lot of the the so-called troubles that uh, plagued her country in the 1970s and the 1980s and some of the issues that Jerry Adams has kind of found himself wrapped up in regarding the, the provisional IRA and the IRA potentially. Uh, so she kind of is a, uh, a new perhaps generation, though, as you said, she's got very big shoes to fill, though she came out and said that's okay because she's not going to fill his shoes. She's brought her own shoes. Uh, so we'll see what, what she has to do. But it, it is remarkable uh, that we have these two women leading the party. And also notable, as you said, that there was a woman in the party leading it for about 12 to 13 years in the 1930s. It's not entirely unusual. And I think in our next story, we'll get to this a little bit as well. But these revolutionary movements, for a number of reasons, often have women playing significant parts. So the fact that as the, the IRA and what became came the, the Sinn Féin party, that they would have women in leadership positions as they were trying to get independence and as the revolutionary movement was going is, is not entirely insignificant. Well, about that next story, Rebecca, and the role of women being, as you said, uh, revolutionaries, as you mentioned, I mean, it's definitely not unprecedented. But let's talk about northern Syria, actually, in the Kurdish-controlled part of Syria. We have a women's movement that has emerged, and there's a, a new organization called the Women's House, which is pushing for women's rights, equal rights, the ability ability to uh, divorce, the ability to inherit property, the ability to keep children and their homes after a marital breakup, to address domestic violence. This is a pretty interesting development 
Parliament, although also not unprecedented among the Kurdish party, because for a long time, the Kurdish party has focused on, their philosophy has focused on gender equity in government, in business, in whatever it is that they're working in. So we see here in the northern part of Syria, the police, the courts, militias, actually women uh, playing a significant role. Yeah, this is fascinating as well. And, and you know, the Kurds are, are in this kind of situation where they're they're not recognized in certain countries. They at some point would like to have their own state. Of course, the PKK is the organization often referred to as a terrorist organization, often referred to as a revolutionary organization to uh, think about there. But as you said, they have always had women and thought of women as in some regards equal and have pushed this as a platform. Now, they've been in the northern part of Syria for about six years and have essentially set up their own systems there, their own governments. There have been the development of women's organizations. And almost immediately as the Kurds took over that area, they did start Start instituting more of these women-friendly policies. So it was impossible for women before that to be able to divorce. That was seen as something that the, the men could do. Now women are able to do that. They're able to keep their children. They're able to get money in a divorce settlement. If their husband is actually already married and they didn't know about it, they have rights there too. So this has been a, a big shift for some of the people that are in that area that were not Kurdish, but are, are seeing this potentially as, as a, a kind of a movement for the future. And it, it is fascinating to, to see this happening there. I mean, they're setting up driving schools, they're setting up firearms courses. I mean, this is really uh, a, a quite a development and is catching on with a lot of young women and even younger Arab women. Now, of course, there isn't, this isn't without pushback in the area. I mean, there's, there's of course, some pushback. But to, to quote the woman who leads the women's house in the Kurdish area, she says, the patriarchy really is over. And I think we can end on that note there. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Rebecca, for being here today, as always. Thank you. We want to hear your thoughts about today's discussion. Leave your comments and questions in the Worldviews section of KGOU.org or follow us on Twitter at WorldviewsKGOU. You can also follow me at Suzette Gorlot. Next, I'll speak with Trita Parsi about the future of the Iran nuclear deal under the Trump administration. I'm Suzette Gorlot, and you're listening to Worldviews. This is Worldviews. I'm Suzette Gorlot, the Dean of the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Trita Parsi is a foreign policy expert who advised the Obama administration throughout talks leading up to the Iran nuclear deal. He's also the founder of the National Iranian American Council, which promotes engagement between the United States and Iran. Trita Parsi, welcome to Worldviews. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. Actually, you are uh, you spend you spend a good amount of time now three I four do, three I four do. times you've come There's here to Oklahoma. About Oklahoma. Yeah, it, it it kind of catches you. I don't know. It, it draws you back. Um, well, Trita, you recently published a book about uh, the Obama administration's work with Iran, and it's entitled "Losing an Enemy." Obama, Iran, and the triumph of diplomacy. Now, I'm going to bring us up to the present because we all know that this is, kind of, you know, we're in questionable relations again today with Iran. But, you know, there had been so much optimism about where we were headed uh, given Obama's um, engagement with Iran. So can you just kind of set us up a little bit, tell us a little bit about your book, and uh, and then maybe we can uh, then talk about what's sure. going on today. I know that today, mindful of what's going on, it sounds like a hopelessly naive title for a book to call it Losing an Enemy, 
A Triumph of Diplomacy. But I deliberately chose that title because, first of all, it was a triumph of diplomacy. Now, whether a subsequent administration turns against that deal and sabotages it doesn't change the fact that this was an astonishing victory for diplomacy to be able to reach this deal in the first place that showed that diplomacy could work and also showed that it's far more effective than any other policy option. Please know it's not called lost an enemy. It's losing an enemy. It's a process, and it's an uncompleted process. That was also chosen because one of the things that became quite clear in 2015, when the deal was struck, and there was some opposition in the Iranian parliament, and there was plenty of opposition in the U.S. Congress, and plenty of opposition in Israel and Saudi Arabia, it became clear that one of the things that actually was most disturbing to the critics of the deal was not the details of the deal. It wasn't whether the restrictions were long enough, whether the Iranians were keeping too many centrifuges. It was the fact that something had been done that had shaken up this enmity between the United States and Iran. And there were elements in all of these different places who preferred to keep Iran or to keep the U.S. as an enemy. And their biggest fear was to lose this enemy rather than fearing the consequences of the deal or whatever shortcomings they believe it had. And I think this is part of the reason why we are where we are now. Because those forces were not strong enough to be able to undermine the deal in 2015, but with the change of administration, they've been given this opportunity and they're taking good advantage of it. So there was no surprise from your perspective that we would be taking a step backward here and perhaps regaining an enemy or at least keeping an enemy. Um, it's nevertheless been a bit of a surprise to me um, the extent to which the current administration has gone on this, but also, to be very, very frank, uh, how superficial the opposition to the deal has been. I mean, there's people in the administration who are very much opposed to the deal because they believe that they have unfinished business with Iran due to what happened in Iraq. There's people in the administration who believe that ultimately this is changing the balance of power in the region or accepting a change in the balance of power that the U.S. should not accept. These are, I think, all interesting critiques of the deal. There's a degree of basis for it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can understand it. But then you have uh, the most important person in the administration whose opposition seems to simply be driven from the fact that he opposes the deal because he has Obama's name on it. But he says it's a bad deal. I mean, that's what he keeps saying. But he's never he's been able to articulate publicly what about this deal that is so bad, except for some things that he's keen on mentioning that are false, such as the idea that the Iranians got $150 billion of American money. That is not true. We're talking about Iran's money that was frozen in bank accounts around the world, in Japan and Switzerland, that were frozen as part of the sanctions that the Obama administration imposed on Iran and as a concession in order to get the Iranians to agree to cut down their nuclear program from 22,000 centrifuges to 5,000, to get them to ship out 98% of their low and rich uranium, that money, their own money, was given back to them. So when he chooses to only use these kind of lines in his public criticism without actually articulating something that is actually more valid, it doesn't leave you with the impression that he actually has a deep understanding of this. So then fundamentally, the agreement in your mind works. It's working. It would work if we continue to pursue it. The stepping backward now under the Trump administration is going to do more harm, I would presume? Is this Absolutely. Your... The body that is overseeing this deal is the International Atomic Energy Agency. They're the police. They're the referee. They just issued their 10th report last week, reiterating that the Iranians are living up to the deal. 
So from that end, it is working. Their pathways to a nuclear bomb have been blocked. Uh, war with Iran, at least as long as this deal is, remains in place, has also been averted. There's a flip side of it that is not working, and that is the Trump administration's implementation and adherence to the deal. They are violating the deal right now. And that's a problem. It's partly problematic because it's hardly reported, but they are in clear violation. When McMaster in Munich said that you can't trade with Iran because that's like cutting a check to the IRGC, the deal clearly states that sanctions have been lifted and nothing can be done to undermine what is now legal and permissible trade. Otherwise, essentially, we're giving the Iranians a concession and then we're undermining it at the same time. The language of the deal is quite clear on that. Uh, What McMaster said is a violation. Trump himself at the G8 meeting actively went and pressed other countries not to trade with Iran, even though that was the incentive to make the deal work. So unfortunately, the Trump administration is in violation, and uh, I'm very worried that that eventually will cause the deal to collapse altogether. And if it collapses, I think we should be very clear on where we will be. Prior to this deal, there was essentially only two options. Either the United States would go to war with Iran or it would strike some sort of a compromise uh, on this issue. Or it would have to accept that Iran was a de facto nuclear power, which obviously neither the Obama administration nor the Trump administration wants to do. If we destroy this deal, we're going back to not that situation, but to a worse situation, because at least in that situation, there was a diplomatic option. If we undermine the deal, we have no credibility to go back to the negotiating table. And then we're only faced with either war or accepting Iran as a nuclear power. Now, to be fair, this deal is really about nuclear weapons. It's about nuclear capability, and it's all all of the restrictions and everything is focused on that purpose. But there has been some criticism that it doesn't go far enough in terms of facilitating any kind of political change in Iran. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people who want uh, you know a change of regime in Iran and want to see measures that will lead to that type of outcome. Now, you've done some work in the past where you've focused on trying to boost the role of moderates in Iran. And so where are we on that? What about this issue of regime change? That's a great question. Let me take the first part of it. Uh, You mentioned that there's been criticism that the deal doesn't address geopolitical matters such as, you know, Iran's policies in the region. And uh, it's a common criticism, particularly from Republicans from Israel and Saudi Arabia. I find it a bit bizarre because I remember I advised the Obama administration during the negotiations and even prior to this diplomacy really getting into high gear, I was pushing and arguing in favor of a broader agenda, an agenda that actually would be including some of these other things. On the counter side of my argument was the Israelis and the Saudis who were pushing to only have the nuclear issue beyond the agenda. The Saudis in particular did not want to see the United States talk to Iran about any of the non-nuclear issues. So it is a bit astonishing to see them being on the forefront of arguing now, oh, this deal is bad because it doesn't deal with those other issues. I thought that the former head of the Mossad, Efraim Halevi, was quite honest and effective in October of last year at a panel in New York. When asked about this issue, he said, it's very simple. The reason the Obama administration only focused on this is because we asked them to only focus on this. And he was sitting next to the former head of the Saudi intelligence minister who was complaining about this. The Obama administration had additional reasons for not going in that direction, and that is the fact that it had the calculation, which I think was a fair calculation, that the only way to be able to get a deal was to make sure that the rest of the Security Council was united. If there was divisions within the Security Council, the Iranians would be quite astute at playing the various powers against each other. 
uh, and that will make it much more difficult, if not impossible, to get a deal. There's essentially only one issue the Security Council could agree on, and that was to prevent Iran from having a pathway to a bomb. If you included human rights, or if you included Syria, the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese are much closer to each other on those issues than they are with the United States. So it would have complicated matters tremendously. That doesn't mean, however, that these issues should not be addressed. They should be. The question is how? Well, we actually know how now. We have one example of the United States being able to dramatically and significantly change a core Iranian policy, and that is through this nuclear deal, which was achieved through multilateral diplomacy. We have plenty of examples of the United States not being able to change Iranian policies. So if we truly are genuinely concerned about Iran's regional policies, well, we know that diplomacy can work, and we know that all of these other options based on coercion, threats, etc., have not worked. So if we're genuine, why are we not going back to the negotiation? table and talking about these things. There is a process. It used to be in Geneva. The U.S. could be involved in it. It chose not to. It moved to Astana. And it's right now only the Turks, the Russians, and the Iranians. So there are pathways to be able to address these concerns. But I'm left a bit, a bit baffled. If we genuinely are concerned about this, why are we not pursuing the most effective route? On the issue of the Iranian moderates, without a doubt, I think your question is quite correct. If this deal is undermined, the Rouhani government will suffer a tremendous embarrassment and probably be the end of them because they put all of their eggs in the basket, not just in the idea of a nuclear deal, but it's about the idea that Iran can resolve its problems with the West through diplomacy by making compromises. If that path proves to actually not work because the Trump administration undermines the deal, it's going to be the other side in Iran that is going to get strengthened. Those who say, no, you can't compromise with the West. You can only meet force with force. And if that's the type of Iran we want, well, that's the type of Iran we might get if we continue on the current path. Obviously, this is a very complicated mm -hmm. issue. And, and in some ways, it seems really unrealistic to think that you would go from like zero to 100, right, in, in this relationship when we've not when we've been at odds for many, many years. Um, so to criticize the agreement that it didn't go far enough, as if, you know, you could go all the way uh, at that point in time. You know, you mentioned the, the Saudis, the Israelis, the Russians, the Turks. But, I mean, I've read a little bit about how a lot of, you know, the, the primary audience for the whole nuclear issue is, is largely domestic anyway, right? So when bringing in this domestic political angle seems to be really important. I mean, clearly the Saudis, the Israelis, the Russians, the Turks, and others have something to say about what's happening here, but is the power more on the side of the domestic audience more so than the regional No, I, I would say I think uh, you're quite correct that there is a domestic audience, but that domestic audience tends to be driven by or, or heavily influenced by the concerns of some of the regional allies. You obviously do have a lot of people inside government whose job is nonproliferation, but the average American is not you know, read up on those issues. It's not waking up in the morning and thinking about these issues. You do have average Americans that are very concerned about Israel's security, however. And Israel has been saying for the last 25 years that Iran's nuclear program is an existential threat. And as a result, managed to make sure that this became a top issue in the United States and globally. So this is a process that started in the mid-1990s. I wrote about it in my first book had extensive interviews with Israelis about how they did it and also about their concerns. They were very worried uh, because on the one hand, they wanted this to be a global issue. 
But they were the only ones sounding the alarm bells about Iran's nuclear program in the 1990s. So they were afraid that if they're the only ones sounding the alarm bells, it will come across as an Israeli issue and not as a global issue. So they were constantly balancing that. But I think they were actually quite successful because had it not been for what they were doing, this issue would not have gotten on top of the U.S. national security concerns. Well, to, to finish up here, Trita, I mean, what are we to expect, do you think? Do we have any hope that this relationship, that it will turn around? Um, I think we're going to see some very dramatic things happening in the next couple of months that will tell us uh, the final direction of this. I think the American public definitely can have a say in this, uh, in the sense of their own conversations with their lawmakers, etc. I think what's really important to keep in mind is that this is a matter of war and peace. Uh, if we go in a direction that is not carefully thought through, that rips up uh, a tremendously difficult diplomatic achievement, we will very likely end up in a situation in which war increasingly will become inevitable. And war with Iran will not look like war with Iraq. War with Iraq was an easy military feat. It was the aftermath that was tremendously difficult. On the Iranian front, even the military aspect is going to be very, very difficult because it will not be a U.S.-Iran war. It will be a full-scale regional war. And what I'm worried about is that most Americans don't even understand what is at stake here. We're focused on North Korea because it's more imminent and it's obviously extremely dangerous. But to be frank with you, the likelihood of war with Iran is probably higher. All right. Well, Trita, on that rather somber note, thank you so much for being Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Trita Parsi about the fragile nature of the Iran nuclear deal. His most recent book is titled Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Worldviews is produced in partnership between KGOU and the College of International Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Katie Holland prepares our research, Caroline Halter edited this interview, and Sam Dupre produced the show. For Rebecca Cruz, I'm Suzette Gorlott. 